Today's scripture reading comes to us from the book of Genesis, chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, and chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every, burst, be, every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I will, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, for it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all, all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and is given to us in love. <clears throat> Good morning. Uh, if you were not here last week, we started a new sermon series. And what we did in this sermon series is we began to trace God's covenant through the Old Testament. And a covenant, what we learned last week, is it is simply a relationship. And uh, the covenant that God makes with man in the Old Testament, we talked about how it's the engine that propels the story forward. It's kind of the through line throughout all of the Old Testament. Uh, God's covenant with Adam and with Noah and with Abraham and with Moses and then with David um, is kind of God's renewal of the covenant with a different person throughout the entire Old Testament. And what we learned uh, last week is that if we don't understand what this covenant is, we're going to miss out on who God is. And then we're going to miss out on who we are. And ultimately, we'll miss out on who Jesus is. And it's this one covenant, which we talked about being a covenant of grace, 
that uh, is the through line of Scripture. So we saw it with Adam. This week, we're going to see it with Noah. And we're going to see that this covenant of grace, one of the aspects of it is that it's restorational. When uh, my wife and I moved here uh, about four years ago, three and a half years ago, uh, we did a lot of house hunting. And we were looking for a house to buy. And um, there was one house on the market that we kept never going and checking out, even though it was like right in our price range and all those things, because the kitchen was so bad. I mean, to my wife, that was like it. If the kitchen's not there, we're not going. Um, But finally, the price dropped enough, and we went and we checked it out. The kitchen was rough, and I promised her we will at some point renovate this kitchen. Let's just buy the house. We're ready. So we moved in, and it took us about like two and a half years to renovate. And, you know, I I have zero skills just in general. Um, But renovating anything is, uh, if there's a negative skill, it would be that. Um, And so we hired a contractor. We wanted things to be done quality for the least amount of price possible. I'm sure they hear that all the time. It's really annoying. Um, We started doing this thing. And there was this one wall where uh, we had space for some more countertops. We need more counter space, right? So Andrea had a great idea to go to Red Collection to get a dresser to put on that wall. And we looked for a couple weeks, and we finally found one that was right. Um, And this thing was nasty. Let me just be honest. It was gross. And I thought to myself, if there's one thing that I can do, one thing, it would be to do some, like, manual labor, right? Like, that's all I got in me. So I borrowed the contractor's electric sander. We put the dresser out in our garage, and I started going to work on that thing. It's, it's hard work. I don't know if you've ever sanded something. I didn't know this. It is a lot of hard work. It's, it's labor intensive. And so I'm out there for hours and doing the circles or whatever, which is probably wrong because I still don't know if I did it right. But um, the more, the longer I was out there and the longer that I was sanding the top of this dresser and the more dirt and grind that had built up over probably decades, who knows how old this thing is, um, probably by hour like four which was like the next night. I didn't do four straight hours. But, um, and I started wiping away the dirt and the sand that was coming from the sanding. Underneath was this beautiful, gorgeous wood. I mean, I don't know if it's mahogany. I don't know anything about wood. Mahogany, something. Beautiful, though. Like, I'm, I'm telling you. And it made me go faster, and I wanted to do it more. And I kept... I got down to the original wood, and I was like, this is incredible. And the top of that dresser, once I finished it, was this gorgeous, deep, brown, dark wood at its core. And I was like, wow, this was worth it. This is why people actually work hard at these things, because there actually really is beauty beneath it. And I tell you this story because I really want that idea to frame this story of Noah. I want it to frame the way that we look at the flood that we've heard all about and the violence Uh, that is this story where God looks on mankind and he sees his sin and his brokenness and he sees what he has done to creation. And in a lot of ways, it seems like he sends the flood out of a punishment in a punitive way. And there is some truth to that. But what we saw last week in God establishing his covenant of grace with Adam is that he establishes or renews that same covenant with Noah. And God moving towards 
uh, creation in this way, sending the flood, what we're going to learn is that it was in a restorative way. Like the dirt and grime that had built up for decades on the surface of the dresser that I restored, so too did the curse that came from man, his sinfulness, being unfaithful to the covenant, built up on the world, compounding on itself, breaking down God's good, perfect creation. And at the heart of that is mankind, right? The, the jewel of God's good creation, rebelling against him using their image-bearing nature to oppose God rather than to honor Him, rather than be a blessing. As we saw with Adam last week, they became a curse. And this led God to action. But this is not judgment only. It wasn't retribution. The action that God took was restorative. Not to punish, but to restore, to purify And the same, I think, we're going to learn today. And this is why it's so important for us to learn to sit in this covenant together. It's because the same is true for me and for you. God is in the business of restoring us to who we were always meant to be before the mark of sin on us. We need God's purification, His restoration on us. And what we're going to see is that uh, sanctification... And restoration, they're two sides of the same coin in a lot of ways. We need God's restoration through his gracious dealing with us because that's how we grow in him. And a lot of times that's hard. It is because it feels um, like pruning a lot. Um, Sometimes it hurts. It's not always easy. But I think in it, We learn a lot about ourselves and about God. But even more so, I think we grow. And this is truly what we see in God's covenant with Noah. Uh, We see a restoration of all of creation, but also of his covenant people of Noah. And so uh, today, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look corporately that we must look to God for his covenant of grace on us for restoration from our own sin. And we're going to see this in three ways. First, uh, Christ restores us personally of our sin. This is more like a vertical orientation, us and God. We're going to see that Christ restores us interpersonally from sin. So that's with one another, kind of a horizontal orientation. And finally, Christ restores us eternally despite sin. That's kind of the eternal orientation. So first, Christ restores us personally of sin. Last week, we saw that Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden because they chose rebellion against God rather than faithfulness. And in the chapters that come afterwards, we see the aftermath, the effects of the sin, kind of that dirt and grime kind of idea that I uh, told you guys earlier, built up on the earth. Uh, So much so that when we get to chapter 6, which is in your bulletin, but I actually put it up there so you guys could really see it. It says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So he said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. For I am sorry that I have made them. See, this is what sin does. It pollutes, it deteriorates, it breaks down. But what we see here is that God grieves at that brokenness. He grieves the most at what we had 
done. And by chapter 6, we've gone from believing the serpent's lie about autonomy, right? Moral autonomy and choosing of good and evil to a full-blown culture of godlessness. What was rampant on earth in, in the time by, from creation to the Tower of Babel, which is right after the story, was uh, the ultimate act of rebellion, I think. Uh, it's man's total denial of God and a reliance completely on self, saying, I don't need God, I can be like God. This is sin in its totality, right? A complete conscious rejection of God and a reliance on ourselves. And this is why God sent the flood. Yes, there was a moral motivation by God in it. But we don't see a distant God sending wrath down on his people. But these verses showed us a righteous father grieving over his children. Here's what's tough about this and why God had to intervene. It's because we couldn't fix what we undid. We couldn't do it. God had to intervene on our behalf. This is what judgment actually is. God intervening to fix and restore sin for the sake of his righteousness. We can't miss that part of the story. That is what the flood was. But it's only half the story. And if we stay there, don't, we don't only miss the other half, but we miss maybe uh, the point of the story itself. And the point of the story is to communicate to me and to you that God moves towards his people in grace consistently. That he is resolved to redeem and restore you and me and all of creation despite our rebellion. Our sin cannot thwart his promises. Verse 6 I read to you I think is the key of this. God grieves in his heart. He regrets that he made man. And, and this regret is, is not the sense that God hadn't wished that he didn't make us. That's not true. But rather it was regretful what we had done and how we had turned against him. He's not enraged. He's saddened. So this is why when the water recedes, Genesis 8 says this. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every animal and every bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when God smelled the pleasing aroma, he said, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For every intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I strike them down while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God never, our promise is never to curse the ground from sin again. And there's actually a, a really good key to the story uh, in this. Uh, because with Adam, God covenanted with an image bearer, right? He covenanted with him before Adam had rebelled against him. But with Noah, what we see is God covenants with him, yes, as an image bearer that he created. But also now as a sinner. He covenants with Noah and with all of mankind, both in their image bearing nature and in their sinful nature. And what we saw last week is that God does not change. He is good and holy and righteous and full of justice and truth. And so he moves towards us consistently. But it's the human agent because of our sin that changes in the covenant, which makes God move towards us in a different way. And this is why we have to see that God's interaction with mankind from here on out will always be informed both by our image-bearing nature and our sinful nature. But this is good for us because it means that God's judgment, his good, godly judgment over sin, 
is never an end of itself. It's for our shalom and for our flourishing. So here, let's, we, we've been up here in the 10,000 foot. Let's bring it all the way down. This is why it's hopeful for me and for you. This is why this story is very hopeful for me and for you. It's because I think more than anything what this story has spoken to me this week, and this doesn't seem hopeful at first, but I promise it is, <laughs> is when I look at the brokenness of the world and my own hurts and my own frustrations, we need to realize, and I need to realize, that the problem is not out there, it's in here. We have to realize that we are the problem. It's easy to look at this story and think it's in a different universe or a different time. And yet the sin that was pervasive in the hearts of the people on earth in Noah's time is the same sin that's in ours. Rejecting God's goodness and his provision and relying on self. It's hopeful though because we need our own personal restoration from our sin. Because if God's judgment is restorative for our flourishing and shalom, then we need it. And what I love about restoration is that it's an active word. Uh, It's always from something and to something else. You're always restored from something and you're restored to something else, right? So that's how we're going to frame this. Uh, We need personally to be restored from something and to something else. So what do we need to be restored from? Well, one thing I want to say out front is this. God knows that the problem of our sin is not solved by judgment and curse only. Judgment on its own and outside of God is punishment. All it does is kill. It doesn't bring life and and frankly, it doesn't change hearts. But God's judgment, again, hear this, God's judgment is restorative and always takes place because of and for the sake of his goodness and grace. So this means we need to begin to take the sin in our own hearts seriously. I think one of the biggest ways that I lie to myself, and I don't know if you're in this boat too, is I think that my sin's not that big of a deal. Others, definitely a big deal. Mine, not so much. We have an incredibly developed skill. We're masters of it, of rationalizing our own actions and our own decisions and our own sinfulness in almost every scenario. But when we tell ourselves that it's not a big deal or that no one will ever know or that it doesn't really affect us, we lie to ourselves. Our sin always diminishes flourishing and shalom. So where personally do you feel like you're rebelling against against God this morning? Where do you need to turn from this morning? For some of you, it's the big stuff. Addiction, adultery, cheating, or other big sins that that have adverse effects on your life. For some of you, it's the little, the quiet sin. The ones that maybe everyone wouldn't know about. That's eating you up inside. But both cause harm. And both, the little and the big, they enslave. One thing I love about restoration is that it turns us from something, right? Into something else. But what it turns us away from is enslavement. We can't have freedom this morning. So what are we restored to then? Well, I think about, and and picture this with me, imagine this, the floodwaters receding. 
And think as they recede, think of the sin that had plagued them to receding and God's restorative justice. Think of the plants in the, the bushes being able to breathe again. Think of the animals scared and in hiding coming down from the trees. Think of, think of the world being able to function again. But I think mostly of growth. I think that the growth that is enabled because of the waters receding. I think that it's growth that we are restored to, that we are turned towards. Sin deteriorates and kills and chokes out growth, but Christ's death enables growth because it restores us away from our sin. If sin is what restoration moves us away from, it's freedom in Jesus Christ that it moves us towards. And there we will find growth. So three questions before us this morning before we move on. And I'm not going to dive deep on these. You can make a mental note. You can write them down. But just think through these things this morning. What sin do you need to turn away from to be personally restored by the grace of Jesus Christ? Then, where are you turning towards instead? Where are you finding freedom in Jesus instead? So what do you need to turn away from? Where do you need to find freedom in that, in Jesus? And finally, where is that going to lead to growth? Where is that going to lead to growth for you? This is personal restoration. And what, what I think we're going to learn, though, as we get to our second point, is that the personal, our personal health, always has interpersonal ramifications. Our personal health always is what is the biggest signifier of our health in relationship. So, we see that we must look to the covenant of grace for restoration from sin, and that he restores us personally. Now we're going to see that Christ restores us interpersonally from sin. So, as we mentioned earlier, this is the same covenant of grace that God established with Adam and now with Noah. Think of it uh, like a different episodes uh, from the same TV series, right? The plot stays the same. The, the characters are functioning and working essentially the same. The same story between God and his covenant with creation. But the reason why this is different today is because there's a curveball in the plot, right? One of the main characters really, really messed up. And it threw a wrench in the whole thing. Leaving uh, the TV metaphor, what we said last week is that God never changes, but the human agent changes. And because of sin, it changed in a big way. But what we see is God consistent still. Chapter 9 says this, God blessed Noah and his sons, said be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he said uh, in, in verse 6, whoever says blood man, uh, by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. Be fruitful and multiply. He repeats it again. This is a mirror of Genesis 1. If we stack them up next to each other, they're almost identical. Chapter 1, God was, uh, man was made in God's image. Chapter 9, that image-bearing nature is affirmed. God told Adam, be fruitful and multiply. He affirms that and tells Noah the exact same thing. We see God bring all the uh, animals to Adam to be named in chapter 2. Here, God reminds Noah that all of created order is put under his care. You see, it's the same covenant. Even with sin entering the picture, God binds himself to man, blesses him, gives him purpose, reminds him of his status and his identity, and restores his calling throughout all of creation and the interpersonal even. Mike Williams puts it this way, the essential point here is that nothing of God's original instructions to Adam and Eve are annulled. To be sure, the situation is now radically different. But as God holds himself to his word... So too does he hold man responsible to it. 
The God who jealously refuses to give up his original purpose for man and the world will not allow man, even sinful man, to give up either. So what's different here? The difference is his interaction interpersonally. We see this first with the animals who are no longer just under our dominion, but now live in fear of us. Even man's interaction to animals have been changed. Before sin entered the picture, they were not used for food. Now God explicitly saying that they are. Um, We see God say this to Noah, smack in the middle of the covenant renewal in your lifeblood. I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it from a man. Um, And then he says this, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning of life. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. What he's doing here is he's instructing his image bearers not to kill each other. God has to explicitly say, don't kill each other. To remind them that though they are sinful, they need to be elevated in one another's eyes. That man must seek to care, love, and serve creation, yes. But they must also first seek to care, love, and serve one another. This part of the covenant uh, with mankind uh, is such that God has to elevate one another in their eyes. And I I think what this presupposes about us as humans is that our first inclination to one another is hostile. It's our initial inclination to look at one another as less than, as worse than ourselves. What this means is that we often see each other as sinful first, right? Before we see each other as children of God. But what we established last week is that God always moves us first as image bearers. He moves towards us as his, as our, sorry, as we are his image bearers and as sinners in need of salvation second. And we must move towards one another in that way. Man, relationships are hard. It's hard to move towards one another trusting and in love and in care first. And the reason for that is because we've each, every single one of us have been sinned against. By other people. Every single one of us have been hurt by those that we've been in relationship with. And some of you have been hurt really severely. Trust has been broken for you. There are certain people in your life I know that you cannot forgive. Or that you would never want to move towards in grace and forgiveness. There is space for that. The brokenness of the fall is that we, even as image bearers, can do immensely hurtful and wrong things to one another. But here's the hope of this story. The hope is that the grace and healing of Jesus Christ can restore those broken relationships. Those of you that have been deeply wounded or hurt by your parents... The hope is that one day through the grace and healing of Jesus Christ that you are restored. Maybe not completely in your relationship with them, but that you could begin to move towards them again one day, maybe even just a little. Those of you that have been deeply hurt or wounded by those of the opposite sex, the hope is that one day through the grace and healing of Jesus Christ that you could be healed and restored. Maybe not with that specific person who hurt you, but that you can learn to move towards those in the opposite sex in a healthy way because of the grace and restoration of Jesus Christ. Those of you that have been hurt by abuse, sexual, physical, emotional, spiritual, or otherwise, 
The hope is that through the grace and healing of Jesus Christ, you can be healed and restored and find healthy physically, sexually, emotionally, and spiritually relationships with others. See, we are all in this boat together. And we need that. We need that healing and that restoration that God promises. But I, I love about this story is that we have proof for a millennia that God moves towards his people in a restorative and gracious way. We see in this story that God actually wants to intervene and step into that mess with us in our fractured and broken relationships with one another. We have a God who came down and died so that we could be healed. That is the hope for you and for me. And we see it even in this story and how he entered into this picture with Noah and with all of creation for his restorative purposes. Will you look to Jesus for healing and restoration in those interpersonal relationships? Will you? And this leads me to my final point. So we've seen we must look to God's covenant grace for restoration from sin and that he restores our hearts and our calling. Now we're going to see he restores our covenant despite our sin. So God enters into this relationship again with Noah. And he sends him provision uh, and building the ark and he gives him purpose and reminds him of his identity and his status. And he reestablishes this covenant with Noah. And what he does in reestablishing the covenant is he gives Noah a sign. He gives him a sign to remember. Verse 12 says this, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that's with you for all generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the sky, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And all the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all the flesh that is on the earth. This is the sign of the covenant. One thing that I want to bring to your attention is this. First, verse 15 says that God will remember his covenant when he sees the rainbow. Now, God doesn't forget things like we do, like we, when we forget our keys, right? This is a very different idea. When God says that he will remember his covenant, what he's doing is he's saying, I'm going to make the past a present reality. Uh, what he's saying is when I say that I remember something, it's I am stating my promise to you that I have given to you in the past. So in that way, the rainbow is a promise, a covenant sign of God's faithfulness and goodness to his people. But the word rainbow in the Hebrew is actually an offensive weapon of war. It's like a war bow that you would use to shoot at people. And the idea that God places the rainbow in the sky as a pledge to always be faithful and the restoration of his creation is symbolic. It's almost like a peace treaty, right? It's almost like God laying down his bow, laying down his weapons and wrath for the sake of his creation, that though we may rebel in war against him, he moves towards us in grace and peace. Our faithful suzerain putting down his bow for his wayward vassals. 
This is hopeful in one way, right? But I think that the, the war bow means something else as well. Um, one thing that was normal in covenants was a blood offering or, or, or an oath like Noah did to God in chapter 8. Actually, we read it. Um, it's kind of a mutual binding of the oath. It would be a promise of peace between the two parties that was confirmed by a blood sacrifice. Um, and the reason there was a blood sacrifice was because it symbolized something. That if one of the parties doesn't hold up their end of the covenant, the price would be their life. If one of the parties did not hold up their side of the bargain, they would pay for it for their life. This is a, the fancy title is a self maledictory oath, or as my wife said on a walk yesterday, an unbreakable vow in Harry Potter language. But if you look at the idea of a rainbow, and if you look at it as if it's a war bow, right? It is pointed not towards the earth, but heavenward. And if you look at the earth itself as the plane, almost like the bowstring, that means that the bow is pointed towards God. And if we think about it this way, what God is communicating to you and to me is this. Is if I break this covenant, the bow is pointing towards me and I'll suffer for it. But what he's also saying is if you break this covenant, the bow is pointing towards me and I'll suffer for it. And what we know is that even after this covenant, even, even after the covenant with Abraham and with Moses and with David, we didn't keep up our end of the bargain. And what we know is that God did suffer for it. Is that he did turn that bow on himself and he came down and Jesus Christ walked among us and he took my suffering and he took your suffering and our rebellion and our sin and he died for it. What he promised to Noah, he fulfilled in Jesus Christ. What he promised to you, all the way back with Noah, he fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That is the God we serve. That is our eternal orientation, is in love, in a service, in affection to that God who promised hundreds and thousands of years, not hundreds and thousands, hundreds and thousands of years ago to die for us if we don't fulfill our end of the bargain, and he did. Um, I called a friend who's much handier than I am. No one in this congregation, so don't worry about that. Um, and I said, hey, this is going to go in our kitchen. This dresser is going to go in our kitchen. And uh, I need to know what kind of stain to put on top so that it'll, uh, you know, it'll last. Because I'm messy and I drop stuff on it all the time and stuff. Um, get a lot of use out of it. And they said, use this outdoor stain. It's really nice. It'll, it'll last forever. Well, I put the stain on there. And what I realized is that stain was supposed to be used for decks, right? Like people were going to walk on it and they were going to, you know, really work it way more than even me just spilling some stuff on it. What that meant was it never really dried. So this beautiful, perfect brown wood, I put a wrong stain on it and marked that thing up. And so I had to spend more hours sanding it, trying to get it back to that original thing over and over and over. And I can never get them completely out. 
If you come by and you look at that dresser, that I messed it up. That stain is still there. There's a couple of them, actually, not just one. But you know what I realized is I actually think that that makes the dresser a little bit. It kind of makes it a little more beautiful in a lot of ways. It's not perfect. It's got some scuffs on it. Yeah, the wood is still there. You can see it, and it's beautiful, and it's gorgeous, and it's a little messy. It's scuffed up a little bit. And that's the same is true about us. Yes, God does restore us to what we were always meant to be before the mark of sin. But man, those scars are still there. And our relationships, those scars between us are still there. And what we know is that the scars on Jesus' hands and on his feet were still there too. And yet, and yet, in that, restoration is freedom and is love and is hope. And that is what we can hang our hats on today. Not ourselves, but on that goodness and on that grace. Amen.